Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was May 13th, 1985. The only aerial bombing committed by police in the United States took place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The bombing was a response to years of escalating conflict between police and MOVE, a radical Black liberation group. It ended in the death of 11 people and the destruction of dozens of houses. MOVE was founded in 1972 by John Africa, born Vincent Lepart. The early 1970s was a turbulent time in American race relations, as Black power groups organized to demand rights and protested the social ills of contemporary society. On top of that, opposition to the protracted Vietnam War was causing a lot of political strife. After John Africa served in the Korean War, he became dissatisfied with life in America. John Africa and MOVE advocated for Black nationalism and anarcho-primitivism. They wanted to return to a hunter-gatherer society without modern technology and medicine. They also supported animal rights as they believed that all living beings should be treated ethically. Members of MOVE changed their last name to Africa in recognition of their homeland. And the organization was not quiet about its socio-political aims. MOVE members lived communally, mainly in West Philadelphia. A big part of MOVE philosophy, detailed in the 300-page manifesto known as the teaching of John Africa, is self-reliance. That means that MOVE members ate raw food, composted, and scavenged. Even when in the city, they lived a life close to nature. But their neighbors took issue with their ways of life and how loud their public demonstrations for racial justice and animal rights were. In 1977, people complained about the way MOVE members lived and how loud their protests were. Their neighbors said they had too many animals on their property, were violating weapons codes, were keeping filthy conditions, and refusing to pay utility bills. So the police got a court order that required the group to vacate their compound in Powhatan Village at 307 to 309 North 33rd Street. MOVE agreed to leave the location and give up their weapons if members who were arrested during demonstrations were released from jail. Though police agreed, MOVE did not leave the property. The next year, that conflict took a turn for the worst. On August 8, 1978, police showed up at the compound to execute the court order. That turned into a standoff where five firefighters, seven police officers, three MOVE members, and three bystanders were hurt. Police officer James J. Ramp was shot in the back of his neck and died during the firefight. Though there was back and forth over whether the fatal gunshot could have come from a MOVE weapon, nine MOVE members, dubbed the MOVE Nine, were arrested and convicted of third-degree murder. MOVE transferred to 6221 Osage Avenue, still in West Philadelphia. They put bunkers in the house and on the roof, and they blasted their message from a bullhorn day and night. Neighbors again complained about the cleanliness of the house and excessive animals, and said that MOVE members were committing verbal and physical assaults. 
So on May 13, 1985, Mayor of Philadelphia W. Wilson Good sent police to the home to execute warrants for the arrest of all the people who lived at the compound. But when police arrived at the house, MOVE members did not respond to their demands to let them enter the home or to let children inside leave. Police Commissioner Gregor Sambor said over a loudspeaker, Attention MOVE, this is America, and began attacking MOVE. Police used fire hoses on the house, fumigated the house with tear gas, then began shooting thousands of rounds into the compound. A Pennsylvania State Police helicopter dropped C4 explosives onto the house, which caused a fire that was further fueled by gasoline in the house. Because the firefight ensued, police let the fire spread rather than send in firefighters. The fire destroyed more than 60 homes, and six adults and five children inside the home were killed. John Africa was one of the people who died in the incident. The only MOVE members to survive the attack were Ramona Africa and Birdie Africa. The incident was covered live on television. Philadelphia had become the, quote, city that bombed itself. Mayor Good enlisted a commission to investigate the bombing in 1986. The commission's March 6, 1986 report said that negotiations were haphazard. The mayor's failure to put an end to the operation was, quote, grossly negligent, and dropping the bomb was, quote, unconscionable. The commission declared that the police would not have used the same violent tactics in a white neighborhood. But even though the commission called for a grand jury investigation, there were no prosecutions, and Good was reelected in 1987. Ramona Africa was convicted on riot charges and spent seven years in prison. She and the family members of two relatives who were killed in the attack won $1.5 million in a civil suit judgment. The federal jury also found that officials authorized excessive use of force and violated Fourth Amendment rights. Bertie Africa, who was just 13 at the time of the bombing, went back to using the name Michael Ward and was placed in his father's custody. Cobbs Creek, the neighborhood where the compound was located, never completely recovered. The homes built to replace those destroyed were shoddily constructed, and when the city bought the homes in the early 2000s, residents left in droves. In 2018, newly rehabbed homes in the neighborhood were ready for sale, though neighbors were worried about the high prices driving them out. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you're so inclined, you can follow us at TDIHC Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back with more history tomorrow. Hello everyone, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a podcast that brings you a slice of history every day. The day was May 13, 1861. Australian amateur astronomer John Tebbit observed the Great Comet of 1861. The comet was visible to the naked eye for about three months, and it was visible through telescopes until 1862. John Tebbit was born in Windsor, New South Wales, and his father was a farmer. He developed an interest in astronomy early on, thanks to conversations with his tutor Edward Quaife and articles that he read by astronomer John Russell Hind. 
1853, Tebbit bought a marine sextant. He also had a clock with a seconds pendulum that he regulated by making celestial observations, and he had a small telescope. Over the next few years, he acquired more instruments. His first astronomical publication was in the Sydney Morning Herald in 1854. When comets appeared, Tebbit would calculate their orbit. A comet is an icy body in space that releases gas as it passes near the sun. In 1858, he observed Donati's comet in the Australian sky. Tebbit also observed phenomena like meteors, planets, and variable stars. Between 1854 and 1862, he published 34 pieces in the Herald. In 1860, the government astronomer William Scott invited Tebbit to work at the Sydney Observatory, but Tebbit turned down the request. On May 13, 1861, Tebbit was searching the skies for comets. Through his marine telescope, he saw a nebulous object near a star in the constellation Eridanus. He decided to keep observing the object. Tebbit sent a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald announcing his discovery of the Great Comet of 1861, and it was published in the paper on May 25th, his 27th birthday. In it, he said the following, while engaged in examining the heavens with a small telescope on the evening of Monday, the 13th instant, a nebulous star of about the fifth magnitude in the constellation Eridanus attracted my attention. It was then distant a few minutes of a degree from 1316 of Lacaya's catalog, a star of the sixth magnitude. Finding there was no nebulous star in the catalog in the same position, I immediately conjectured it must be a comet. He went on to say that he realized the comet had moved half a degree and that he had told William Scott about his observation. The announcement incited a considerable amount of public excitement and responses. Tebbit continued making observations on the comet for weeks. The comet became visible in the Northern Hemisphere in late June. Earth passed through the comet's tail, causing meteor showers. It remained visible to the eye for around three months, but it stayed visible through a telescope for several more months. The comet is formally designated C1861J1 and 1861-2. The term Great Comet isn't an official designation, but it typically describes a comet that is extremely bright, as most comets are not visible to the naked eye, and even when they are, they're often fuzzy and faint. Tebbit built his own small observatory and continued to publish his observations. The Great Comet is expected to return in the 23rd century. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you have any suggestions for shows, feel free to send them to us on social media. We're at TDIHC Podcast. You can also send us a note via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.